Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien from City University, London. On this episode, we're going to be talking about Why Music Matters, the new book by David Hesmond-Hals from the University of Leeds, published by Wiley Blackman. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. Uh, this uh, episode, we've got David Hesmond-Hals, who's a professor um, in, is it cultural policy or communication studies at the University of Leeds? I think my official title is... Uh Professor of Media and Music Industries. Media and Music Sorry. Industries. Right. And we're going to talk about Dave's new book, Why Music Matters, uh, which has been released this year uh, by Wiley Blackwell. Um, and it's out in hardback and paperback. But before we get into the book, um, I wonder if you could just tell the listeners a little bit um, about um, your career previous to writing the book. And, and I guess kind of how you came to think um, we needed to, to know why music matters. Yeah, I'll have a go. Um, well, I've been, I'm quite old now, so I've been working on, uh, uh, I've been a kind of media uh, academic with an interest in popular music and music general. Since the 1990s, I was I used to teach uh, in a school in Lancashire, and uh, I decided to go back to university uh, in my late 20s, I ended up doing a PhD on independent record companies supervised by uh, Georgina Bowen, uh, an anthropologist. Uh, that was at uh, Goldsmiths College in London. And I guess that took my interest in two directions, uh, both towards cultural production, you know, how we come to have the, the culture we have, how it's produced and circulated, um, but also in the direction of, um, of music studies and interest in music, um, which I've had since I was uh, a child. Um, so, yeah, most of the work I've done has been on either of those two subjects, really, sometimes both, uh, on cultural production, the cultural industries, media industries on the one hand, and music on the other. So... Uh, uh, risk of uh, making this too long an answer. That's <laughs> quite all right. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You'll have to tell me, Dave, if I blab on too long. Just uh, interrupt me. Uh, in the 1990s, I was uh, uh, approached by a publisher to write a book on popular music, and for various reasons, uh, I failed to write that book. Right. And uh, um, I ended up writing... Uh, a book called The Cultural Industries, uh, which was published in 2002. And which is now in its third edition? It is, it's in its third edition, that's right. Um, but I've carried on working on, on music since uh, since the 1990s, uh, and somebody, uh, well, a publisher called Wiley Blackwell approached me in um, around 2006 and said, uh, uh, we'd like you to think about writing a book on popular music. And I said, uh, no thanks, but I would like to write a book about music um, because I increasingly felt that the 
issue that interested me most wasn't popular music hived off from everything else, but but music is this kind of you know, phenomenon in the world in our lives. And at first, the book was conceived as uh, an attempt to mm, challenge the way that a lot of music had been thought about in cultural studies uh, in terms of concepts such as resistance. And uh, uh, what it seemed to me that a lot of cultural studies did was get the relationship between music and politics and aesthetics wrong and thereby do a disservice to all those things, all of which I think are incredibly important. And so the book was called The Politics of Music. And uh, as it developed, I realised that 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 title uh, would give the misleading impression uh, that I was simply reproducing the kind of heroic notion of good music, uh, that precisely the, the notion that I wanted to work against, i.e. the idea that music's only interesting um, when it uh, has the potential to change the world. Now, I, uh, I'm very, very interested in that potential, but I, I think it's very, very uh, rare that one sees that potential, anything like fulfilled, if, if ever. And so I wanted to look at a much broader sweep of the relations between music, politics, and aesthetics, and experience, really. So um, I uh, wrote to the publisher and said, hey, I've got a much better title than the one um, that we originally envisaged that you didn't like, The Politics of Music. I, I think we should call it the value of music. And I waited for a week, and then I got a reply from the publisher saying, the marketing department absolutely nixed that title. Ah. They think it sounds too philosophical. Which, so, Which must uh, be a bad thing in publishing. Oh, I, I, uh, certainly in the marketing departments of certain academic publishers, uh, philosophy is a very bad thing. Um, and as you can probably surmise, Dave, I don't, don't really agree with, with that view. Um, and, um, but um, the tone of the email suggested that I didn't have much alternative but to accept that view. So I went to the pub with some colleagues a few days later, feeling somewhat sore, and said, you know, and complained about my troubles, as one does with colleagues in the pub. And uh, a friend and colleague, uh, Stephen Coleman, said to me, I think you should call the book Why Music Matters. And I thought, yeah, that sounds okay. I'll go with that. And thankfully the publishers uh, accepted that title and that's what it's called. And in some ways, actually, it's ended up um, perhaps sort of more philosophical being called Why Music Matters um, than it, even it, it would have been as, uh, as the value of music. I, I think it's really interesting the way... Um, you kind of deal with that question straight away in the book because you, you talk about the way the book is going to be a, a sort of a critical defence of music. And I wonder if you could say what, what you mean by that idea of, of something as ha having a critical defence and perhaps also why music needs a critical defence in the first place. Sure. I guess the book is partly an intervention into debates about the value of culture and the value of music that have been um, uh, fashionable, for want of a better term, in yeah. uh, recent years. Uh, I think 
there are good reasons why we should be thinking about the value of culture and the value of music at the moment. And some of those uh, reasons relate to the rise of a kind of what you might call economistic thinking, a, a, a way of thinking that reduces the value of things to uh, the degree to which they serve uh, economic development, be it education or health or culture. And so uh, I think culture, including music, uh, needs defending against that type of thinking, which some people would characterise as, as neoliberal. And uh, some people would argue that uh, neoliberalism has made that problem of the value of culture much more uh, serious over the last 30 years or so. I guess a second uh, strand of thoughts that I think uh, requires us to think hard about the value of culture and of music is postmodernism. Um, uh, uh, although I think there were things that were um, progressive about postmodernism in the 1970s and 1980s, especially when it was tied to critiques of certain forms of class, gender, ethnic inequalities. Um, postmodernism, at its worst, ended up pulling the rug from under any attempt to uh, discuss um, the value of culture. There was a nihilistic strain to uh, postmodernism, certainly to certain varieties of it. So uh, I thought I think those are the two contexts: neoliberalism and postmodernism. You might uh, might say for the need for a defence of culture and more specifically of music. Now, a critical defence... <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was my doorbell, just ignore that. Sorry, a, cr- a critical defence. You have a life, Dave. You have visitors and things. That's great. <laughs> I hope you can edit that out. Um, the, the reason why I've called it a critical defence is that there are reasons to think that music can't, as has really been implied by a lot of um, positive appraisals of music, reasons to think that we shouldn't separate music out too much from um, the difficult and problematic things in the world, such as uh, the kinds of inequalities that I've just referred to, um, such as the kinds of um, instrumentalization, the uh, the fact that uh, in our modern societies we see increasing levels of prosperity generally, but uh, diminishing levels it seems of um, of satisfaction, well-being, flourishing, however you want to call it. Um, very complex relations between psychic problems, psychological problems, um, and uh, social uh, uh, injustice. So that's why I wanted to call it a critical defence, because I think sociologically we need to bring those things in. And so it's probably worth saying, just to round off this long answer, that uh, although um, you know I value philosophy and attempt to draw on certain kinds of philosophy in the book, the book's also... Uh, sociological, uh, it draws on cultural studies and uh, psychology and various other disciplines. Um, I guess it's certainly multi- multidisciplinary 
uh, it's not just philosophical. Yeah, it, it absolutely is, actually. It's, it's really interesting the way that you kind of combine in the book um, aesthetic theories, theories that are associated with political philosophy, right the way through to, you know, interesting kind of, I guess, sort of analysis of particular songs and particular artists, and then stuff from um, more empirical projects that you've done um, over the last few years. And it, it was really interesting to see them kind of in combination to mount this um, this critical defence, particularly against, I guess, yeah, those two or three sets of issues, not just theoretical, but also practical in terms of a kind of unthinking defence of popular culture and then the kind of the reduction of, of music's value to just uh, uh, pounds or, or dollars. Um, mm-hmm. to, to get kind of, I suppose, into the... Uh, into the text of the book, um, there are four substantive chapters in which you move from, I guess, a, a, a kind of a starting point of, of almost the individual through um, relationships, um, couples, families, intimacy, sexuality, into a much broader kind of global um, point of view. And it'd be interesting to sort of take them step by step. So to start with the, uh, the chapter on feeling and flourishing, um, could you tell the listeners a little bit about, um, I guess, how you begin your critical defense of music from the point of view that music might um, be part of and might allow um, people to kind of flourish or fulfill their potential or um, to have um, increased, uh, I guess, levels of sort of well-being or, or to um, tie into their capabilities? Yeah, sure. Yes, I think that idea of flourishing uh, is important to how I see the book. As you say, Dave, it's, uh, the book's conceived at four levels. There are four levels at which I uh, consider the value of music, at which I consider why music matters, um, the individual, uh, the intimate, the um, the, the, the core present, i.e. the way in which it enhances uh, people's experiences of the world in terms of sociability and so on, and they're together in the same time and space. And finally, the fourth level, uh, what I call mediated commonality, the ability music has to potentially enhance feelings of solidarity and commonality across time and space. So I begin uh, at the level of the individual, uh, which I suppose I should point out that that isn't to endorse any kind of methodological individualism. It's just a kind of building block, a starting point, really. But I've become more and more interested in the Aristotelian tradition of thought, and I've become very attracted to the um, ideas about what constitutes uh, a good life, what constitutes life well lived. And I've increasingly come to see that as a, a fundamental issue underlying a lot of our discussions about politics uh, and about ethics and about how we, should, uh, uh, how we should try and make the world a better place. So drawing on uh, writers such as Martha Nussbaum and Amartya Sen, I try to lay out, uh, and Andrew Sayer, the British social theorist, I try to lay out a kind of conception of human flourishing that then underpins the rest of the book. And I guess what I'm doing in terms of music is suggesting that it's music's particular relation to emotion and feeling 
that gives it uh, an especially strong role to play in terms of human flourishing as a cultural form. Of course, I'm not the first person by any means to point out that music has strong relations to emotion and affect. Um, People have been writing about that for 2,500, 3,000 years. (laughs) And so that's something of a challenge, really, to try and um, find a way through that massive thinking and, 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 um, and, and insight on music and emotion. But I guess what I wanted to do was find an alternative to um, the, the way in which um, different schools have approached that, different uh, 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 um, perspectives have approached that question of music and emotion. Um, one would be the empirical social science of music, especially uh, music psychology, which uh, often emphasises the kind of banal uses of music, quite right, because that's a, a very important part of, of, of musical experience, but maybe downplays some of the uh, strong ways in which uh, music uh, evokes emotion in us and downplays the uh, the power-laden aspects of that. On the other hand, I wanted very much to contest what's been called the affective turn social theory, which often has Deleuzian roots, drawing on the, uh, the French uh, thinker, philosopher, uh, Gilles Deleuze, um, and which, I guess for me, provides often a very caricatured notion of how previous writers and thinkers have approached the question of emotion and dismisses emotion as a product of um, naive humanist thought. And I think that emotion uh, and humanism are more complex than the Deleuzian affect theorists sometimes portray them to be. It, it was particularly interesting, actually, that you come to... Um to these ideas about um, affect um, and emotion because one of the things that chapter tries to do is combine um, the political philosophical um, questions in Nussbaum, Sen, um, with, with actually a really sort of practical focus on dancing and like, you know, sort of, I guess, what it's like to have fun with music, which I found really interesting. That, thanks, Dave. Yeah, the um, Nussbaum... Um, who is, uh, uh, I think, a very significant philosopher in the Neo-Aristotelian school, provides um, one of the best accounts uh, throughout her work, really, of the relationship of uh, human flourishing to questions of social justice. But she also um, has written at some uh, some length uh, and impressively about the relationship between art, uh, culture and um, and human flourishing and emotion and there's in one of her books um, Upheavals of Thought there's a discussion of music and emotion which I think is much better than the really very strange discussions of music and emotion that you get in analytical philosophy uh, analytical aesthetics 
but the problem is with Nostan's account uh, is that it uh, relies on a notion of musical experience that you might say is very high-minded. It, it kind of assumes a, a, a highly educated listener at a, a, a Mahler concert, something like that. So I wanted to bring some of the insights from her perspective, which is one that sees music as being able to contribute to uh, human self-understanding through um, through uh, uh, contact with certain emotional experiences of a particularly intense kind. I wanted to extend that from the kind of model of a highly educated listener listening to certain sorts of music in Nussbaum to a wider range of musical experiences. And there I'm drawing on... Um, well, I think of it as cultural studies 101 in a way. It's Raymond Williams's basic insights from the 1950s onwards that uh, culture is a matter of ordinary experience, not just a, 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 about the best that has been thought and said, as, uh, as Arnold more or less put it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I try to extend that into the world of uh, disco records uh, and um, and I think I, I, I do I don't just think I do, I listen to attempt to listen to a, a jungle track uh, to think about what kinds of emotion what kinds of experience those tracks are invoking and link that into a discussion of the way in which people have talked about the, the ways in which dancing um, and uh, making music and so on uh, can enhance our lives. Uh, it, it's interesting that um, you, you sort of bring up Williams because um, he's a figure that carries over into um, the third chapter of the book, which I guess broadens out from the individual um, experience to think about um, sexual relationships, love, um, and kind of broader um, emotional aspects. And in that, you try and um, almost in a, in a kind of Williams and Williamsian, I suppose, would that be the word, tradition, try to do a bit of historical analysis as much as you're doing musical analysis, particularly around the way uh, rock music has been um, bound up with notions of sexuality and similarly things like hip hop have as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, for many people, popular music uh, feels extremely bound up with the realm of sex and I tell the story in the book of talking to one of my good friends a non-academic and saying I'm trying to write about music and sex and he saying to me well that's the whole of music isn't it and it seems to, it seemed to him that uh, ev everything important that needed to be said about music related to to sexuality and I certainly wouldn't go as far as that but it seemed to me important to address that question head on and it seemed to me too that a lot of the ways in which that relationship have been written about are problematic again to recall something I was saying earlier they, they, they rely on a kind of heroic uh, heroic rock narrative mm, yeah uh, that in the 1960s, 1950s onwards, but particularly in the 1960s and 1970s, rock unleashed 
human sexuality in some way. It freed a generation from the sexual constraints uh, of, of, a, of previous eras. Um, now, I'm not saying that there isn't something in that, but I think there are considerable contradictions and problems in the way in which rock uh, portrayed human sexuality and the way in which people devoted to rock um, portrayed rock's liberating role and I'm drawing there really on uh, critiques that developed in the 1980s and 1990s out of feminism, out of cultural studies and in some ways the, the book uh, that chapter partly defends uh, uh, certain kinds of pop music and I guess I want to talk about the value of certain kinds of popular music that uh, don't kind of necessarily uh, challenge uh, in some uh, some supposedly rebellious way prevailing notions of human sexuality uh, so much as uh, touchingly or beautifully uh, reminders of our vulnerability, uh, our reliance on others that are particularly apparent to us in those intimate uh, experiences. I think, think it's, um, it's another moment where that kind of critical defence happens, whereby you're sort of taking on um, both these kind of heroic um, models of, of rock musicians as kind of inventing sex in the 60s or whatever but also you you show a sort of um, I guess an ambivalence um, about the possibility that music can contribute um, positively to both sort of intimate relations but then more broadly later on in the book um, in the fourth and uh, fifth chapters to, to kind of social change um, and much kind of uh, much more communal experiences and I think there's a, a particularly um, fascinating point that you raise around uh, I guess the importance of places here um, and things like scenes and I wonder if you could say a bit a bit about that yes yeah, so this is the chapter where I, I, I tried to take on the way in which music can contribute to our lives in terms of uh, sociability and bringing people together uh, the way it enhances our sense that we uh, have something in common with uh, those immediately around us and of course the way in which more problematically it can enhance our, our sense of the differences between us two. Again, as you say, uh, uh, trying to get at that ambivalence and trying to sociologically uh, unpick a bit where the good experiences that where the, the valuable aspects of music might most lie and what were they might be most compromised in modern life and I take it to a, a different level if, if sociability is about our core presence our being in the same uh, same place at the same time at parties at, at gigs festivals and, and, and so on and music's relationship to that then there's another aspect of core presence which is that we live together in the same places and that music has some sort of relationship to that too linked to the notion of sociability but maybe going beyond it in some way so the sense of people 
feeling that they live in a good place or a not so good place. Music is very important to that. And I don't think that the value of music is being conceived of enough explicitly in those terms. And there's been a lot of uh, discussion of uh, musical collectivities in relation to cities, to places, using concepts such as scenes. And that, that discussion, those discussions have been uh, interesting and often very helpful, but there's been some pretty um, um, troubling conceptual confusions going on in them. So I wanted to just move that to one side a little bit and get at this fundamental issue. What does it make? What 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 constitutes a good musical places? And so that's what I try to address in, in that chapter. And, and you interrogate things like, you know, questions of inequality, class, work. You know, these things come through there. But that sort of shared potential um, is something that, um, you try and develop in, in the final chapter, um, I guess, moving away from, as you say, things like scenes, but the possibility that music would be um, a kind of uh, a space for people to connect um, is a way of kind of defending its aesthetic value. And, and this transcends place. So in that final chapter, you, you're talking really about kind of, you know, transnational um, and uh, I guess sort of, you know, very mediated forms of music, particularly things like like fandom and how they can be the basis for um, things like um, political action. Yes, though uh, perhaps somewhat sceptically. Yeah, yeah, very, very sceptically. <laughs> when it comes to, to, to fandom, that, that, uh, that uh, absolutely, without, I hope, dismissing it too. Um, yes, I, I, I guess what, one of the things that that, that final chapter, which is, as you say, is on uh, mediated community, community across uh, time and place. One of the things I try to address there is the idea of the nation. It, it still seems to me that the nation is the ultimate test of people's abilities to live together in viable communities. And like many people these days, I'm extremely sceptical about the nation uh, and extremely concerned about forms of nationalist discourse that serve to reinforce power, existing forms of power and inequality and totally uh, marginalise or exclude entire groups of people. And I, I a wonderful example of this last week was the the British newspaper The Sun had 22 million copies of uh, some special edition of The Sun inserted through our letterboxes uh, on an appalling uh, celebration of uh, a version of white Englishness that could have been written uh, 30 years ago in many ways. It's as if you know, anti-racist multiculturalism never happened. And well, yeah, and, and for those elements, I guess, of the right, both in places like the States, in, in continental Europe and in the UK, they sort of wish it hadn't either, so... That, that, that's right. And, and so music can... Music sometimes is considered to be a, a, 
an important way in which um, those patterns of racist exclusion can be um, questioned and again stressing the ambivalence of music in the modern world I've tried to discuss a number of examples where music only seems to reinforce with a special affective power uh, those kinds of nationalist and often racist discourse but I also tried to show, drawing on the work of some interesting ethnomusicologists such as Martin Stokes from King's College London, that music's relationships to the nation aren't always as appalling or as problematic as, you know, the use of patriotic anthems to march uh, young men and women off to their deaths in the uh, First World War. Um, and uh, Stokes' examples are from the case of Turkey. Um, I think you can look at a range of examples, as I've tried to do using other people's work, that suggest that uh, music can be an important way in which the differences between groups within the same nation can be eased and even at times transcended but always with that threat that certain aspects of capitalist modernity will pull the discourse back to the uh, reinforcement of, 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 of difference, uh, of power-led indifference. I mean, one of the things that was, uh, that was a real pleasure in the book is we, we've been sort of discussing it for half an hour or so, and we've taken uh, one particular line of thinking through it, but actually, there was a whole range of ways that uh, that we could have um, kind of cut into uh, the text to highlight other uh, elements or, or other aspects of it. So it's a very rich book indeed, although as one would expect, but it's dealing with a question as big um, as why music matters. As a way of kind of concluding, um, I always ask uh, my guests on the podcast this about where their work's going or what projects they're working on next, which always seems a bit strange when they've just finished a major uh, a major undertaking like writing a book but are you planning to develop more along the lines of the kind of uh, musical scholarship or are you taking a different direction for a while what, what's what's next for your work it's very nice of you to ask that dave um the the the, the next big thing i i'm committed to doing is to write a book on cultural policy which i know is a a, a big interest of yours um, together with my colleagues uh, Kate Oakley uh, and Dave Lee from the University of Leeds and Melissa Nisbet from King's College London. Um, and that's a study uh, based on our empirical research of uh, the, uh, the cultural policies of the new Labour government, the Labour government of 1997 to 2010. Um, the other big project, uh, and I've who have some study league coming up and been head of department for a few years. Um, the other big, big-ish project that, uh, that uh, I've got on the horizon is what I'm calling at the moment a, a moral economy of media and culture. This is an attempt to understand the relations between capitalism and culture, which I've written about before in the cultural industry stuff, but on more... Uh, Aristotelian grounds, so it draws on the kinds of Aristotelian thought that 
I address the why music matters, but uh, takes it in a different direction, really to challenge or in some ways complement two ways in which the relationship between capitalism and culture and media have been thought about in recent years. One is the kinds of neoliberal economistic thought that I mentioned earlier. Um, but the other is what often gets called the political economy of culture, uh, usually Marxian in flavour. Um, and I have generally been very interested in the political economy of, of media and culture and have engaged a lot in, in, in that subfield. But I think that it has some limitations and I want to complement some of the best achievements in political economy by drawing on Aristotelian work on economic life, not written by economists, but often written by philosophically inclined social theorists, uh, such as John O'Neill from Manchester and somebody I mentioned earlier, Andrew Sayer from Lancaster University, whose work I find quite inspiring in its uh, clarity and depth of thought. And I want to try and bring uh, some of those qualities in my, my own way. Uh, I want to try to bring them to bear on uh, media and culture because that has, hasn't really been done before. So those are the two big projects, cultural policy and, I guess, you know, capitalism and culture through a moral economy lens. Um, but I'm also doing bits of stuff on, I'm trying to write a paper on the question of exploitation. I've written quite a lot about uh, work in the media, media work in the past, including a book called Creative Labour. I want to come uh, back to the question of, of exploitation, which I think has been... Um, misconceived, misconceptualized in, in some recent work that remains an extremely important concept in my view. And I'm also trying to still write bits of stuff about uh, about music. I'm uh, writing a piece on what's happened to alternative music and independent music and the idea of independent musical institutions uh, together with my uh, colleague from Leeds, Leslie Mayer. Uh, and I'm also writing uh, a piece about The Clash. Um, and I'm, In fact, I'm talking about The Clash to a conference in Belfast on Friday uh, together with a, a lot of people who know lots more about The Clash than I do, including, you know, what drugs they were taking in 1981 and so on. So I'm slightly nervous about that, but I'll be talking about six things I love and or hate about The Clash as, as part of that conference. Well, that sounds absolutely great, and uh, it sounds like you're very busy as well. So, um, so thanks very much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Uh, thank you, Dave. I've really enjoyed it, and uh, thanks very much indeed for, for the chance to talk about the book. You've been listening to New Books and Critical Theory with your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien from City University London. On this episode, we were talking to Professor David Hesjendhardt from the University of Leeds about his new book, Why Music Matters. Thanks for listening.